Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. With my co-host, Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney. And Eric, I don't know how things are in Philadelphia right now, but here in rural Vermont, sun is shining, the snow is melting. Meanwhile, across the pond, Liverpool have beaten Manchester City to go eight points clear at the top of the Premier League. The world apparently didn't come to an end as a result of the shenanigans at Staples Centre on Saturday night. Actually, the world's a little bit better. Even if, perhaps, as a result of everything that happened on Saturday night, maybe the world's just a tiny bit stupider. <laughs> that's, that's one way to look at it, I suppose. Well, congratulations on your Liverpool ball Thank kickers you. and uh, the things that they've accomplished. <laughs> um, but, uh, but speaking of Staples Centre uh, on Saturday night, you know, Kieran... Watching that, an idea occurred to me. I, I have an idea for us to finally get paid. Imagine <laughs> two social media icons, each with more than 7,000 Twitter followers, uh, neither of whom has ever bought a follower, mind you, uh, fighting for the title of Showtime Boxing Podcast Champion. That's right. Instead of Raskin and Mulvaney, it's Raskin versus Mulvaney. Uh, we could sell out an arena. Yeah, very, very small arena, perhaps like a middle school gymnasium with, mm. with tickets priced affordably, of course. Um, we could generate tens of subscriptions <laughs> to a pay cable channel or a streaming network. Uh, my brother, who's a music recording engineer, once worked with Justin Bieber, so it's not impossible that the Biebs could be there. Uh, and we can pay Radio Rahim to scream, Boxing One! <laughs> afterward. Try to poke a hole in this idea. I dare you. Yeah, I've never known you to be such an optimistic Man, but I'm 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 not convinced we could sell out a middle school gymnasium. We might be able to get like one bleacher full if we paper it <laughs> and provide endless free beer and pizza. Yeah, um, you know. But honestly, I think probably no disrespect to your to your brother, but I think probably the only way that Justin Bieber is going to be there is if we actually erect the bleachers on his property and he's directing security to come throw us out, which you know <laughs> would create a bit of a social media sensation. Yeah, that's yeah. true. No, but... I'm writing this down. This is a good idea. Do the fight on Justin Bieber's property. <laughs> Go on, keep okay. going. Exactly. Without permission, right? Um, uh, but here's so here's what I'm thinking. I would go for all of this solely on one condition, that Chris Mannix has to be compelled to be a part <laughs> of the build-up, and he has to, like, contractually moderate our pre-fight trash talk <laughs> just so we can have, at all times, an ISO camera on him so we can forever record and post GIFs of the look of discomfort, shame, and regret that's across his face. Uh, that was my favorite part of this fight week. Sorry, Chris, but it really was. <laughs> yeah. Um, but as far as trash talk in the build-up to our fight, I don't know that I'm much of a trash talker, uh, nor are you. But I would say certainly there are people who out there who uh, would opine that when the two of us talk, it is pure trash. <laughs> it's pure so, trash. So that kind of trash talk we can deliver. Maybe on. part of it is we deputize. We find people to do our trash talking for us. Hmm. Okay. Uh, we have, and in fact, while we're at it, we could actually get them to do the fighting for us. <laughs> and if they're actually any good at it, then we could then go back to actually filling the arenas. Right. So maybe that's actually how we go, really. In fact, if it's just a fight involving two really good fighters who are good mm -hmm. trash talkers, and we're not actually involved in it, right? I, I'm not sure how we make the money from that, but. Right. But, but you generally just described a, a normal boxing, boxing promotion, promotion. So good job. Exactly. 
Yeah, exactly. And, and it's been working so well for this part so far. <laughs> right. um, uh, but there are some things that we can do. Um, we have um, been promising and not necessarily delivering on interviews of late. There has been a... Yes, it's, it's, it's been almost like Jimmy Kimmel going, we ran out of time, we'll have Matt Damon next week, is right. all the promises that we've had of interviews. But we're delivering this week, not just one, but two interviews. Uh, as you may be aware, and if you're not, you certainly will be by the end of this podcast. Uh, this Friday, November 15th, marks the debut of the Showtime documentary, Pariah, The Lives and Deaths of Sonny Liston. And we will be talking to both Sean Assail, who wrote the book that inspired the documentary, and to our old friend, uh, the great Larry Merchant, um, that is a friend of ours who has been a friend for a long time. We're not just saying that he's a friend who's old. Right. Although, I think Although, even Larry would admit he's not young. Larry would be fine with that. Uh, Larry, of course, co- covered Liston's career. And uh, in a sense, you could say he once posed for a photo with uh, Liston and Muhammad Ali. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit as well. So a lot to look forward to there. Uh, we will also preview... The Showbox card that airs live immediately after the Liston Dock, and we'll cover all the biggest news from the past week in boxing. Uh, but first, let's talk about something that I don't think that either of us had anticipated we would be spending a lot of time on. Uh, possibly the best fight of 2019, certainly the most surprisingly great fight of 2019, and of most import to both you and me, unquestionably the best fight certainly of modern times to take place at 7.30 a.m. Eastern time on a Thursday. <laughs> yeah, uh, this is this is just what us old guys needed after that <laughs> 2 a.m. Canelo-Kovalev disaster. Uh, maybe not so great for the West Coast boxing fans, but for washed old farts on the East Coast, <laughs> the 7.30 a.m. start was a delight, uh, and so was the fight we got between Naoya Inoue and Nonito Donare in the finals of the World Boxing Super Series Bantamweight Tournament. We were both concerned going in about 36-year-old Nanito taking on the prime 26-year-old monster Inoue. I don't think, uh, other than me reaching last week to mention Nonito's natural power, giving him something resembling a puncher's chance, I don't think either one of us really gave any consideration to the possibility of him being competitive in this fight. We just wanted him to escape without too much damage, and we were openly rooting for Inoue to end it quickly. But Nonito had other plans. He boxed bravely and brilliantly, pushed and tested Inoue like no one else has, got off the canvas in a dramatic 11th round, and lasted the distance uh, with Inoue winning by scores of 117-109, 116-111, and 114-113. I had it 115-112 myself, uh, but that's fairly immaterial. The right guy won, no sense getting bogged down in the scoring. Instead, Kieran, take me through your thoughts and emotions <laughs> as you watched this unfold and saw Nanito far exceeding our expectations. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, yeah, well, I have to acknowledge what you said i i absolutely undersold uh, and es- underestimated uh, uh nanito in this fight and, and it's not because i don't rate the guy i i do and always have um and had i had any doubts about voting for him for the hall of fame before which i didn't i certainly don't now um but it's because you know he i like him as a person um and i've seen him have some tough fights and not look the force he was um and because of the way that in no way has been destroying opponents i i really did fear for him somewhat but yeah look it turned out the old guy did have one last great performance in him after all and i 
So I, I guess my first emotion, my first thought was I was a little bit surprised. He appeared to me to be the bigger man in there. And that surprised me. You know, I, I, I've interviewed both of them. I've stood next to them. And I, I would have sworn that in a way was the bigger of the two guys. And But maybe that was just, I don't know. Sometimes we give ourselves a narrative, right? Like, in a way, he's a big monster. So he must be a bigger guy but but he certainly didn't appear to be um and, and you know and and Donaire certainly appeared to not only have that extra heft and use use it to his advantage but you know it's interesting like he got through that first round and i thought nicely done well done anito because i thought he might get blown out in that first round to be honest mm -hmm. and i thought oh he looks pretty solid in there he's got his arms like nicely tucked in position he's like he's, he's in yeah he looks all right and then at least on my card he went and won the second round and uh, I thought, well, what do you know? Look at that. <laughs> it's going to be even when he gets knocked out. And then I really thought he won the third round, too. After three rounds, I think I had him up. But at that point, I didn't think that we were in any danger of seeing an upset. I just thought, OK, Denier's, like, showing his experience. He's making, you know, think about this a little bit. And it's all right. I know he'll come back. And then it looked as if that's exactly what was happening. And Uwe was had figured him out and was starting to, you know, find find his range, find his mark, and, and land some really good punches. I think he wobbled Nanito in the fifth round. I can't remember. Um, and then Nanito came back at him. And it was when he came back at him and clearly hurt him and clearly had him, you know, not just worried about that cut, but um, as it turned out, worried about the fact that he could see two Nanito deniers in there. Right. Um, it was during that, that second phase that I thought, my God, we might actually conceivably even not just see a brave performance here by Nonito, but he could actually, like, spring the upset. Um, then, of course, you know, an OA sort of turned it back around again and, and, and showed his quality in class. And then, well, gosh, then that 11th round that, you know, you alluded to it. I mean, just I, I thought it was over when he went down. And, and to have gotten up, made it to the end of that 11th round, and then even done his best to actually stay in there and fight and win the 12th round uh by the end of it uh, i was i'd gone from being a bit embarrassed at the poor quality of my prediction for the fight um and given that you know it wasn't just one off it was like for months i was hoping that you know nanita would fall ill or something and not have to go through this to just a tremendous admiration for a for a fantastic fighter um I will admit that I did think my first impression was that I thought he'd been helped to the end to make it to the end um, by referee Ernie Sharif in that 11th round. And I know that you thought that was the case as well initially, but you sort of indicated to me before we started recording that you actually would like to do a slight mea culpa about some of the tweets you had about Ernie. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I, I, I freaked out a little bit on Twitter over what appeared to be Sharif reaching the 10 count, Nonito getting up a half second after that and Sharif letting it go on. But I rewatched that sequence and Nonito definitely did beat Sharif's count. He got okay. up right between nine and 10. Sharif still screwed up. Um, first, he, he separated the fighters and right. called a knockdown before Nonito had actually, you know, gone down. Gone down. Uh, right. Although, as I noted on Twitter, uh, that was understandable because it looked like he was going down and the ref's instinct was to prevent Inoue from landing another punch while he was down. Uh, even though again, he wasn't down, but I understood the instinct there. Um, then Sharif picked up the count a second or two late. So ultimately it was a long count, but 
Nonito definitely did beat Sharif's count. I was wrong about that. Okay. Um, and I'm glad that he beat that count because yeah. that last round and a half provided uh, quite a few thrills, uh, particularly Nonito seeming to hurt Inoue later in the 11th yeah. round. Uh, between barely getting up from a vicious body shot and then rallying back, some minor shades of round nine of Ward Gaddy won there. Mm. Um, obviously, that comparison is a reach. You know, this round 11 wasn't as good as that round nine, uh, and the fight wasn't anywhere near Gaddy Ward level. But still, this was a fabulous fight, and we've had a lot of those lately. Uh, boxing writer Andrew Harrison posted a tweet shortly afterward asking, What are we saying for fight of the year? Taylor versus Prograde, Donaire versus. Oh, there you go with Donaire versus Denire. I can't be consistent. Oh, well. Nonito uh. versus Inoue. I'm changing the wording of his <laughs> tweet. Go. You'll notice I've just been using Donito pretty much. Yeah, I had, I had been as well, but then I was reading his tweet here. And uh, Anyway, uh, Spence versus Porter, Talarek versus Simansky, Ramirez versus Hooker, Golovkin versus Derevyanchenko. And the replies were interesting because people were quick to point out all the fights Andrew left out. Uh, Ruiz Joshua, Williams Hurd, Roman Doheny. Uh, in my opinion... We haven't seen an A-plus fight this year, but the A's and A-minuses are really piling up. I haven't decided my fight of the year, though I have two front runners standing out in my mind. Um, but, you know, no need to make a final determination yet. Sure. That said, Kieran, can you remember a year with this many contenders you could make a case for? Uh, and, and could you see Inoue versus Nonito being your pick when all is said and done? Um, yeah, to take the last point first, yes, I absolutely can see that uh, happening. Um, yeah, and I, and I do, I agree with that assess assessment. And I think that was similar to what you, Rafe Bartholomew and I were saying in our sort of half year awards thing, that there was a lot of really, really good fights, but there still hadn't been any necessarily great fights. Um, to me, I think, you know, looking at that list and thinking about what might be on my list, I think we've basically got two categories of fight of the year contenders, right? And there's really high quality back and forth prize fights that were just like super high caliber boxing. And on the one hand, and wow, holy crap, events that had you like leaping out of your chair and shouting in disbelief. And I, I think the bulk of the contenders are in that first category. Mm -hmm. uh, and perhaps it's the fresh glow of it just having recently happened. But I think at the moment I might be minded to put uh, Inoue Nonito at the top of that <laughs> list. Um, and to my mind, there's actually really only one that's all by itself in the other category. And that's Ruiz Joshua. And my inclination at the moment is that it might win out over everything just because of the, oh, my God, holy crapness of it all. Um but like you said, no need to make a determination yet. Uh, but yeah, I do think you're probably right to say also that there have been maybe more of that level of fight of the year contenders than usual. And, and yeah. I wonder if that's to some extent, it might be just coincidence, just that people are, we've got enough people in enough divisions hitting their peaks at the right time that it's just happening this year. But I, I do wonder if it's like a testament to how the sort of sports promotional and broadcasting landscape has changed this year. Um, you know, there are silos, as we've talked about, um, you know, and as a result of those silos, you know, some people are getting sort of like locked out of the really good fights. But it also does appear that 
there's a concentration of some weight classes mm -hmm. with some promoters and broadcasters. And those promoters who are tied in with broadcasters or streaming services are really looking to get subscriptions. And so they're not waiting around to sort of make those fights. Um, and, and that's all kind of happening. Um, and I also think it's not an accident that two of those contenders that you mentioned, the World Boxing Super Series fights, I think the willingness of boxers and promoters to participate in, in what's a pretty high-risk venture, really, right. uh, is, is commendable. So, yeah, I think you're right. And I, and I do want – it might just be one of those things, but I do kind of think if, that there might be that kind of reason why, why things have sort of uh, shaken out that way this year. Yeah, good analysis. Um, so, anyway, uh, we talked about, you know, Nanito. But <clears throat> even though in OA1, inevitably – because he didn't blow him out. Uh, it was always going to be the case that some would say that he was, quote-unquote, that great word in boxing, exposed in this fight. Uh, I personally don't subscribe to that. I, I think when you've got a guy who's bowling over opponents, um, there's always somebody, not in infrequently, you or I, who poses the, oh, yeah, well, what happens when he gets hit on the chin and hurt? Or what happens when a good veteran takes him into deep waters? And both of those things happened in this fight in a way. Uh, who, like we talked about, said he was fighting with double vision from round two onwards, but he gutted it out. He didn't just win with his power. I, I felt like he won by figuring out and neutralizing Donaire's traps. And ooh, I said Donaire. And, <laughs> and then after sort of Nonito had sort of responded to that, he responded again um, using his angles and footwork as well as his strength. Basically, this was a real like gut check fight that he came through and he won. It was exactly the kind of fight that, for example, Mike Tyson rarely if ever won in his career right? right like but i don't know so that's my take anyway i don't think any the less of noia in no way after this but do you feel the same way do you think it maybe show that perhaps there is a little bit too much willingness to anoint him as one of the very best pound for pound should there be any more questions after this uh i will certainly say that uh if uh you use the word exposed uh, after this fight, you should delete your Twitter immediately. Right. Uh, right. He was made to look human, yes, uh, by a Hall of Fame bound fighter who produced that one last great performance that the best boxers tend to have in them in the latter stages of their careers. Uh, but yeah, I don't think Inoue's stock goes down. Uh, he was dealing with a pretty bad cut and yep. reportedly a broken nose and an orbital bone fracture. And as he said, the double vision. Um, and yes, he lost several rounds, but uh, man, that, that was very clearly an elite fighter in there getting the win over Nonito. Yeah. His stock only goes down if you had his stock too high to begin with, and specifically yeah. I'm referring to the handful of people who ranked him number one pound for pound. He's a great offensive fighter, a ridiculous puncher, but he hadn't proven to me that he deserved to be above Lomachenko or Crawford or even Canelo. And I just opined last week about how people who have Canelo at number one are overvaluing resume. Well, any people who had Inoue number one were slightly undervaluing resume. Uh, mm. It's a fine line, but this fight was a reminder that we need to see it against a few top guys with varying styles before we move a talented fighter all the way to the top. And Inoue mm. might get there. He's not quite there yet. Uh, but, you know, relative to general opinion... I don't think he was overrated at all, and he definitely was not exposed by Nonito. Right. He was just pushed hard, tested, and he passed. And uh, this was a great learning experience, a great yep. 
opportunity to adjust and persevere when the other guy doesn't go away the first time you whack him clean and when you find yourself facing a little adversity. Yep, yep, agreed. Uh, so last thing we have to hit on is what comes next, if anything, for Nonito. Uh, I would love it if he decided, well, I'm not going to find a better note to go out on than this. And mm. he retires and waltzes into the Hall of Fame in three years. At the same time, he showed he still has something left. He could still beat a lot of good fighters. I'm pretty sure I know what you'd prefer to see him do, and that's walk off into the sunset. Uh, tell me if I'm wrong about that, and any guess as to what he'll actually decide to do. No, no, you're right about that, but I have no idea what he'd actually decide to do. Uh, did you see that tweet thread that he posted? He had photos of his kids crying because dad hadn't come back to the dressing room with the, with the Muhammad Ali trophy and how in no way let him have it for a while <laughs> just so the kids could see it and touch it and they could all take photos with it. Um, right. I thought I, that was. I, thought that I was didn't. Lovely. I didn't realize it was a whole thread, but I saw at least yeah. one photo retweeted into my timeline. Yeah. 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 Um, that felt to me like a guy who was taking his final bow with his kind of. Well, I didn't do it, but thanks, Noya, for you know I didn't quite get this trophy, but thanks for letting me have that, and the kids are happy now. It, it sort of it felt like there was a guy who was happy to sort of draw a line under that, but who knows? Um, as we've learned many, many, many times, even if it was, never take seriously what a fighter says in the immediate aftermath of a loss. Um, you know, like you said, look, I would. You're right. I'd love it if if he were to pick this moment to, to, to head off into the sunset. I like it any time a fighter decides to retire because I know they're not going to get hit in the head anymore. Um, right. But it would also be such a perfect, like you said, perfect narrative ending. Um, but fighters fight. And, um, you know, I was thinking about this. I was thinking, you know, fighters would be awful TV programmers because every show would go on for several seasons too long until, like, <laughs> all the actors were basically just shuffling through the scenes. Um uh, but it's just, you know, it's just very hard for them to leave. And and so, I don't know. I, I could also see that after he did so well against a man who, as we talked about, many had touted to be, at the very least, one of the very best pound for pound in the world. And then they might think, well, I've, I clearly still have it. I could beat a lot of guys. And he probably mm -hmm. could beat a lot of guys. Um, but you also never know at that age, especially after going through a really tough fight like that, you could fall off a cliff any moment and you just never know if that would happen in his next fight. And he tried to pick a fight that was, you know, do a Miguel Cotto and try to, you know, go out against a Saddam Ali and, and right. get beat. You just, you just never know. I would love it if he picked this moment to, it would be such a great moment to go out. Um, but who knows? Who knows? The fight boxes mentality is so different, eh? So right. who knows? It, it It is tricky trying to figure out exactly how much he does have left too just because right. he's suffered several of several losses in the last few years against guys who were not on in exactly. always level you know pretty good fighters but not quite on this level and and they got the better of nonito and so i wonder if there was something the the formula here of him just being so motivated for this fight right. that he that he pulled out this amazing performance that he he's really not going to be able to duplicate it again um yeah you just don't know but uh, i'm 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 with you in uh i'd be perfectly happy not to find out yeah exactly exactly uh moving on to uh some other fights on saturday night on espn plus uh, we saw a pretty competitive 12 rounder at 130 pounds between jamel herring and lamont roach jr it was a boxing match most of the way uh southpaw herring building a lead behind his jab but roach did hurt him 
in the 11th round, and he did rally to make it close. Uh, he couldn't put him down, though, and the 2012 Olympian prevailed by scores of 115, 113, and 117, 111 twice. Uh, Eric, uh, we talked a little bit about the 130-pound division last week when we were talking about Miguel Burchell and Oscar Valdez and possible matchups. So where would you say that Jamel Herring fits in that conversation? I would say he's comfortably in the second tier at 130 mm. pounds. He is just a good, solid, technically sound lefty who is getting the most out of his ability. You know, be- beating the Lamont Roaches of the world, that's a fine win. But I'd be very surprised if he could beat a Miguel Burchelt or, or even a Tevin Farmer. Um, it's an interesting division. Uh, and, you know, we wonder uh, if... Gervonta Davis is gone for good, or would he come back for the right fight? Uh, might Lomachenko come back down? Uh, so there are some wild cards, but as it stands now, I see Burchelt as clearly the man to beat at 130. And Herring, no disrespect, but he's just a guy who's there, uh, who mm-hmm. has a belt, but he doesn't excite me. And I don't feel a burning need to see him take on the very best guys. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, he did do a solid job of surviving that 11th round against Roach. Uh, his brain and his legs definitely were not communicating well for several seconds there. So good for him for, for getting through that and pulling this one out. Yeah. Uh, a quick note uh, in the co-feature to Herring Roach, uh, heavyweight contender Kubrat Pulev easily outpointed Rydell Booker. So Pulev stays in line for a possible shot at the Ruiz Joshua 2 winner. And thus concludes our analysis of the very forgettable (laughs) Pulev-Booker bout. Uh, And now let's discuss the most high-profile fight of the weekend. We danced around it at the top of the show. Uh, KSI versus Logan Paul. KSI won a six-round split decision. And I'll say this for the two YouTubers. They had the guts to get in the ring. They trained. And they gave it their all. And that's about all the nice stuff I can say about them, because from a technical standpoint, this was not good. Uh, But while the fighters are not really worth analyzing on this very serious boxing podcast, I think the referee is. I thought Jack Reese had a really bad night. Uh, He Mm. missed a knockdown that KSI scored in round three. And in round four, he was correct to rule that Paul held KSI's head in place as he knocked him down with an uppercut. But then Jack went ahead and called it a knockdown anyway, and he took two points from Paul. Uh, and on top of that, Reese also spent the whole night condescendingly telling people to relax, even though when they were perfectly relaxed. Uh, Reese is a top ref. He's proven that over the last several years. But I thought he definitely had a bad night here. And that's about all I have to say about the fight. Uh, anything <laughs> you'd like to weigh in on, Kieran? Um, I'm reluctant to give it too much more um, airtime, but yeah, I I do want to agree with you very much. Um, I mean, we always say that anybody who steps between those ropes and puts the gloves on uh, deserves respect. And for all that, I'm not a fan of any of this. That applies to these two guys too. Mm-hmm. They, like you said, they they worked at it. They got themselves into the best possible shape. And and not only did they do that, I think they also do deserve respect for being quite honest about how di- afterward about how difficult it was. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, and how much courage it took. I think Logan Paul said something like, "The first time I was kind of afraid in there, uh, you know, with that first fight." And yeah, I mean exactly um so so i so i like that because one of the things that i didn't like about any of this was this notion that you know, anyone can go in and be a professional boxer but i but i did like like that sort of honesty afterward um i don't know what was going on with jack in that fight um that third round thing was a straight up blown call mm-hmm. um i i don't know what happened there 
Um, in the fourth, I don't know if this is fair or not, but I almost got a sense that I felt like he was treating this differently than he would have done about where professional boxers really had their careers on the line. Like I, I felt like he was treating this as a guy, as a bout where two people who didn't know how to box were boxing. And and maybe that's where a lot like because a lot of the time when he was talking to KSI a lot right it was like he was explaining to him in great detail he goes right. well here's the deal you've got a few minutes right. stay there right. don't don't you've got to stay right here but you have plenty of time and and so on and so forth and I wonder if you know because I think there was also the issue of of, of Logan Paul like um, hitting him when he went down and. Ah, you would hate to see it, but I, I've seen fighters get disqualified for that. And maybe he was thinking he could have done that, but because of the particularly weird circumstances of the whole event, right. didn't want to. Yeah. And, and so I'm almost wondering if the fact that he didn't even tell the judges what to do until a couple of minutes had gone and KSI said he was ready to fight made me think that maybe he was using that delay to himself figure out what to do um i don't know i don't know it's, it's also just possible he just had a had a bad moment there i i, I don't know but right um, well that, if 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 he was using that delay to sort of figure out what to do what he ultimately did was kind of reverse course on uh, what he he had initially <laughs> done like he clearly saw i don't know if he was calling as the foul the late punch or the I, holding and hitting it was or, or both, maybe both or, right I know, to yeah. me the holding and hitting was much more egregious the late punch really didn't seem to right. do much but um either way especially if it was the holding and hitting then the knockdown really shouldn't count if you're recognizing that that's how he knocked him down so to go back and rule that it is a knockdown but i'm taking two points that was a little weird but you make a good point uh, about and i, I can't believe that we've now uh, spent more, know, more than about I two know. minutes on this. But uh, my, the last point that I'll just make is that I think you're absolutely right that he did not want to DQ anybody because of all the attention heaped upon this fight. Um, and in that respect, it kind of reminds me of the, the earbite fight that I think Mills Lane, had it been anything other than a massive Tyson Holyfield heavyweight rematch with the, everyone in the world watching, if that's just about any other fight, the first yeah. earbite, that's a DQ because of yeah. the circumstances he hemmed and hawed and talked to Mark Ratner and they exactly. went over it and tried to figure out what they could do. Cause they just uh, didn't want to pull the plug on this thing any sooner than they absolutely had to. And then bite number two comes and he has no choice. Um, yeah. But so yeah, a, a little of that here, certainly that I, I don't think Reese uh, really ever would have considered disqualifying uh, Logan Paul for that foul. Yeah, I could say a few other things about all of this, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm 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 I'm, fi I'm fine if you don't. Yeah, okay, that's fine. Let's talk about the fact that there were some legit professional boxes on the undercard. Um, uh, okay, so one thing tangentially I'll say about this is that if your argument for justifying all of this is that you have the opportunity to win people over to professional boxing because they'll watch the undercard. Don't put Billy Joe Saunders on the frickin' undercard. That's not going to win people over to boxing. It's just yeah. not. Um, you know, so he and Devin Haney um, were, were both on that undercard, and they both actually kind of struggled to varying degrees in what were supposed to be showcase fights. Haney, his struggle was relative. He, he, he knocked uh, Alfredo Santiago down in round five, and he won a shutout decision. Um, but he didn't get that opportunity to dazzle. An audience of boxing you'd be that's a good bet to put on though like you, you Devin Haney 
really good opportunity. Likelihood yeah. is good. Yep. That that Billy Joe Sanders has in in recent years has had that one surprisingly perfect fight against David Lemieux when he looked terrific, and other than that has been. Um, disappointing when he hasn't had fights cancelled for you know negative drug tests. He's, um, you know, I, I don't know. He, he surprisingly had his hands full, really. I mean, he, whereas Haney, it was just the case of well, he didn't whoop him quite as convincingly as he as he wanted to. Uh, uh, Sanders' fight with Marcelo Esteban uh, Coseres was arguably even uh, through about ten rounds before Sanders just came through from nowhere. And scored a knockout in the eleventh. Uh, I guess it's pretty. I guess I'm showing my hand a little bit how I feel about this. <laughs> but I'll ask you: Do you feel that either Haney or Sanders helped or hindered their careers with their performances on what was certainly a fairly unique stage? Yeah, I mean, I guess they both upped their exposure, uh, although possibly to the kind of audience that won't care, uh, that, that won't tune in for another boxing match after this one. Right. Certainly neither Haney nor Saunders delivered the kind of dazzling performance that makes some first-time boxing viewer say, ooh, I have to start following this guy's career. Um, And that's unfortunate for Haney because we know he's capable of those dazzling performances. Uh, But some people in the know said beforehand that Santiago would be a tough out, and he was, you know, a capable switch hitter, somewhat awkward he wasn't quite the chinny no-hoper that Haney needed uh, mm. in, in this particular circumstance. As for Saunders, um, he had a perfectly realistic assessment of his performance, at least. Uh, he he seemed to realize that, that he stunk in there, uh, so I give him credit for that. But then he went ahead and called Canelo out afterward anyway. Um, and it's that interesting glass-half-full, glass-half-empty thing. You know, he showed nothing to make you think he'd beat Canelo, did nothing to get anyone excited about that fight, but he struggled enough that it might help him land right. the big fight, except that Canelo has proven to be that rare superstar who isn't necessarily looking for easy touches. Um, Saunders is a, a weird case, because as, as you said, he, he had that one brilliant performance against David Lemieux, where... Everyone was lumping him in with Demetrius Andrade as you know a right. super skilled fighter that uh, maybe Canelo and Triple G should avoid. And in pretty much every other fight, he's looked ordinary. Mm. I do think he could beat uh, Logan Paul and KSI at the same time, though. I so too. there's that. I, I do too. Yeah, he might be just one of those guys who struggles with motivation a little bit. And like, you know, maybe Lemieux obviously was a perfect style for him in hindsight. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he knew that was a fight that he wanted to excel on. And he didn't take any of these other series. He did supposedly have a cold this week. And well, we'll, we'll give him that. But um, okay, one final thing, and then we're gonna. <laughs> I promise. I don't know okay. who runs the boxing scene Twitter account, but uh, they posted something on Sunday, like to say that they'd spoken to some people at the event, and or who'd watched, or actually not necessarily at the event, but who'd watched the card. Non-boxing fans mm-hmm. who tuned in for the main event, and he said that they all loved the main event and they hated the undercard because they don't know what boxing is. Right. And what they want to see is a tough man contest. And that's what they got. And so all these, hey, this has been great for boxing. You know, we've got a whole bunch more fans. This is the kind of exposure we need. I need to see some raw data. I don't believe a damn <laughs> thing of it, really. Yeah, when you're really the, the only boxing you're familiar with is Rocky movie boxing. Right. It takes a little while to adjust to what boxing actually looks like and accept yeah. that, uh, you know, fighters sometimes move their heads and don't get hit and uh, that there's strategy involved. And uh, yeah, for, for that crowd, maybe uh, Logan Paul and KSI seemed like a pretty good fight, but you're certainly not going to appreciate 
Haney or Saunders if this is your first time watching. Although, as veteran boxing viewers, I don't know that I appreciated these performances from Haney and Saunders anyway. Right. On Friday, November 15th at 9 p.m., Showtime debuts a new documentary, Pariah, The Lives and Deaths of Sonny Liston. Uh, Eric and I have both had the opportunity to screen it in advance. I can tell you it's tremendous. Strongly recommend that you take the opportunity to see it. And we're going to talk about it and about the troubled former heavyweight champ a little on the podcast now with a couple of guests. And first, we welcome Shauna Sale, whose 2016 book, The Murder of Sonny Liston, Las Vegas, Heroin and heavyweight served as the backbone of the documentary. Sean also appears in the documentary and served as co-executive producer. Sean, thank you so much for joining us on the Showtime Boxing Podcast. You guys are awesome. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, we're, we're thrilled to have you. So let's just start with the basic question of what your role was in the documentary. As, as Kieran noted, uh, you were you appeared on it, so we, we know you did that part in front of the camera. Um, and we know your book was relied upon heavily as a guide, but were you actually involved in the production beyond that? Like, did you have input into what the director did or didn't do? Uh, well, when uh, when the folks at Showtime were running out of money, I, they asked me to hold the boom. Does that count? <laughs> no, that's a, that's of course a joke. This is such a high quality production. Um, it's actually the most high quality production I've been involved with. And, you know, keep in mind I spent twenty years at ESPN. Um, hmm. it, the understanding was always in it, and I was thrilled by this because when I finished my book, I'd always viewed it not as the end of the story, but just a, you know something that would continue on past the book, and that's exactly what happened. Um, I set the table. I introduced um, Simon George and his crew from uh, from Raw um, around Vegas. Um, brought them many of the main characters, but then they went off and they did some of their own work, and mm. that's why this is a um, such a wonderful compliment to my book. It's not just exactly what my book is. It's, it's just I think a really a wonderful compliment that keeps the story going. Mm. I mean, obviously, this isn't the first book. You've, you've written several uh, others on, on sort of rel- tr- often tragedies and controversies related to sports, uh, including steroids, for example. Um, and I'm wondering where your personal interest in this story and Sonny Liston comes from. Were you, were you drawn in by that mystery about his death or was there something else that started you on, on this path? You know, the, um, the, I knew I, I, a lot of times before I know exactly the subject, I know um, what I want it to sound like. And that may seem weird to you, but, but I, I kind of know um, the kind of book I want to write. Um, a lot of times when I finish one, I kind of wish I could have gone to a different place in the writing, but the material mm. that didn't necessarily lead me there. In this case, I knew I wanted to go hard-boiled, true crime. Um, okay. And it was just a matter of sort of finding that story. And then when I found Sonny, um, I, I knew that I had kind of part of it. Um, the thing is, so many good books have been written, especially by the late Nick Tashas, who did mm. the devil and Tony Liston. The question was, where do you go? And by brainstorming, and, and it worked well for me, and I think this documentary um, it, it proves that, was to set the book, unlike all the other do- uh, books about him in the last year of his life, and, and then the inspiration was like all the detective fiction. You, the reader, um, is a step ahead of the character. You know what's going to happen. The character mm-hmm. does, and that creates this tension. And so once I understood that that tension existed, I kind of had my book. And still, I, I didn't. I wasn't all the way there because 
Um, I, I needed something else, and Las Vegas as a secondary character was that something else. So by setting it in 1970, not only did I have Sonny and that true crime detective um, mystery that I could write to, but I had Las Vegas in a year that I felt most people hadn't really paid attention to. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you've seen Ad Nauseam um, Vegas in the Rat Pack years, and you sort of know it in the Godfather years, but I really felt like 1970 specifically was a transitional year. Right. Um, and so that's that's kind of how I came to this story. Ah, cool. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And yeah, I mean, uh, certainly uh, in in the film, Las Vegas uh, plays a, a big role. Uh, one other city that plays a, a bit of a role uh, is my city, Philadelphia. Uh, in the film, yeah, sure. uh, the planned press event in Philly after Sonny won the title is depicted as a critical moment, a potential turning point in his life that went wrong and he turned in the wrong direction as a result. Is that at all oversold in the film? Or would you say, yes, that is the most important slide? Sliding door that influenced the rest of his life and career. Um, you know, I, I don't want to say that it's oversold. Um, I do want to pay tribute to a, a great, great uh, mentor of mine, like Bill Mack, um, who first brought that up in a profile that he did on Sunny. I think in the Philly papers there was some mention of that as well. Um, it is. I will say this: it is extremely tempting to call that his rosebud moment because mm-hmm. um, the reason I don't think it's oversold. Um, is that Sonny spent so much of his life wanting to be like his idol, Joe Lewis, who had this just impossibly easy way about him. No matter that you know Lewis had turned into a, a heroin addict who by the end of his life um, was, was schizophrenic, um, at his height, he was that sort of wonderful American emissary that boxing champions could, once could be. Um, you know, it was, it, it, during World War II, he was on recruitment posters. So he wanted to be like that. So when, you know, he was so, re- he, he had gone through his life so tired by the mob that when he finally wins the championship, he expects this parade for him in Philly. And he thinks that the championship is going to change him. And when there's no parade, he realizes that nothing will change. And to the extent mm-hmm. that, that is a rosebud moment, yeah, I think, I, I think it is extremely important because. After that, and I write in the book, um, you know, he basically said, you know, F you to Philly and, mm-hmm. and you know, F you to the fans. And um, just, you know, if he was going to fight for anybody, he was going to be sunny. Mm. You know, it's, it's sort of following on from from that point and that question. It seems that his, this is a story where every time, I mean, Lewiston, Maine was another one where it seems like every time maybe he thought things could be about to go right for him, they went wrong. And when things looked like they might go wrong for him, they went wrong. And um, my overall emotion watching this was just profound sadness. And and I'm I'm wondering if you felt that way when writing it, if there were even moments where you almost kind of like had to push your chair away from your desk a little bit and take a breath at at just this mounting sadness of of this man's life. Can can I just tell you I am so happy that you get it. Um, (laughs) When I I sit down, no, no, but this is true, and I'm not saying this to to sort of blow smoke. Um, when, When somebody like me sits down to write a story like this, you know, you're alone, you're, you know, you don't know if it's going to find an audience. Mm. And so when it does find an audience, then somebody like you says something like this, it's exactly what I was trying to get at. Mm. Mm. And it, it, there comes a point where, uh, and I can, I don't know how much, I, I won't take up all of your time. I'll say that the Lewiston main rematch with Ali was not necessarily the best evidence of that. Mm. Um, uh, what was maybe the, the fight that didn't happen, which is when Sonny was in the best shape of his life, 
um, for that rematch, and then Ali gets a hernia, and that fight has to be postponed. That's certainly evidence of what you mm-hmm. said. Um, mm-hmm. I do think that, that and the book goes into great detail into the documentary. The second fight, I think, was such an obvious fix that I wouldn't call that an existential piece right. of bad luck. On the contrary, <laughs> I would paradoxically argue that's when Sonny took his life in his hand and decided, mm-hmm. okay, I'm going to fix this fight. I'm going to collect Ali's future earnings. It was, to him, a way of getting control of his life. The moment where I had to get up and, and step away was when Sonny, after all of this, and after he's banned and reviled, you know, um, headlines the death of boxing, he sort of comes back in Vegas as sort of this, this you, know, um, you know, new figure. The press now wants to come to him. He's on a comeback tour, and he's one fight away from, from facing Frazier. And, you know, it's Leotis Martin, who's in 1969, a former training partner. This should have been a walk for Sonny. Sonny was in such control that he had detached Martin's retina. Mm. One win, and he gets another shot in the title fight. And what happens? With a detached retina, Martin connects, Sonny goes down. And that, I think, here to your point, is that existential bad luck that has always shadowed Sonny. And I pick up my book just about from that piece of existential bad luck. Yeah. It's as as a fight fan, it's uh, just fascinating to sit back and think about what a what a Liston Frazier fight might might have looked like. <laughs> My uh, God! But um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, well, you know, look, as a fight fan, Eric, you tell me, but but you're you're probably better suited to this. But don't you think Sonny wins? Don't you think that's a perfect matchup for him uh, at that stage? You know, I mean, I guess on the one hand. Stylistically, Sonny somewhat resembles uh, Foreman, who obviously uh, had his successes against uh, against Joe Frazier. The other way but, around, actually, Foreman, Foreman models himself on Sonny. But right, right, right. But, right, I mean. but right in terms of uh, right, certainly Sonny came first. But um, so there's that stylistically. But then there's I heard Kieran starting to say at that stage that would be the thing is is whether Sonny, you know, in the in the later '60s would have had enough left to deal with Frazier. I think, though, um, and all those points are well taken, I do think, though, that, that career-wise, it would have been a different, um, mm. it would have been a different epitaph for his career. Oh, right. yes. Yeah, oh, yes. And, and, and that leads uh, perfectly to, to another thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, of just sort of the way that his career is viewed, you know, prior to your book and this documentary, I think he was slipping into forgotten champion territory. You know, anyone who wasn't alive for his career mostly knows him as a footnote in the Ali story. Uh, he's he's not a name that you you would hear much when people rank the very greatest heavyweight champions. Even though, uh, you know, as as basically you just said, he was Foreman before Foreman, or people would say he was Tyson before Tyson. Is that how you see it? That you're helping to revive a great boxer who was becoming forgotten. I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not nearly that presumptuous. Um, <laughs> but you know, I would back into, I would back into that question by saying that um, I did think part of my calculus was that um, um, Sonny was not overexposed; that it was a subject I thought rich in the telling that had more telling to do. Even Nick Cautious's great book, The Devil and Sonny Liston. Um, wasn't as big a seller as some of his other books. So, so I, I felt like Sonny. Um, had some expo- you know, there was some exposure left from Sonny that I felt like there was an appetite, um, and the time had sort of come to him, and that's what I think Simon and Showtime, Simon George, the director of this documentary, and then the folks at Showtime got, and and they do so well. Is that it, you do sense, and um, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm thrilled with the amount of screen time I got, but I'll tell you something, Tyson still the show. 
Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and I think when you hear Tyson talk in this, and I won't tell you what I think is the signature line, you'll just know it when it comes, um, that you realize that, that Sonny was, uh, Sonny was underexposed, but that, boy, the time to really met him. And that's where I think mm. this is, yeah. uh, this whole project is, you know, has, has uh, really worked. Yeah, yeah, it is great to see Mike because Mike loves talking about boxing history and and yeah, there's there's a couple of great lines in there. Um, it's it's a, it really is an, an excellent thing to see him in there. Um, final question for you, put you on the spot perhaps a little bit. There are a, lot, a number of different you know you you talk about uh, structuring this as kind of like a true crime. There are plenty of possible suspects laid out and named including a great little surprise one right at the end there um that i want that i want surprise for people or spoil for people but who do you think murdered sonny liston ah that's, boy, <laughs> that's funny nobody's asked me that yet um <laughs> so the uh, the book does uh lay out like a game of clue and um without giving a ton away i thought i had finished the book when um, and this this sounds like fiction. It's absolutely here the way it happened. Um, when I thought I finished the book, when I get a um, uh, unmarked um, Manila envelope um, with inside a transcript from a Las Vegas police informant who um, you talk to the cops, uh, you know, a dozen years after Sonny's death, and in that transcript he implicates somebody in Sonny's death. Now. Um, I'm not trying to be coy. I'll just, I don't want to ruin the documentary for you. I certainly don't sure. want to ruin my book for, if, you have it, if you're about to read it. But just let's just say that that changed my thinking. And so that unmarked envelope with, with, with the recollections of that Las Vegas snitch from a dozen years later um, inserted a whole new cast of characters, shed light on some old ones, shed um, light on some new ones. So I don't know um, who killed him. The, the title of my book, though, reflects my, my absolute conviction that it was murder. Um, yeah. And people have asked me, well, isn't the simplest explanation the, 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 the easiest that he, you know, accidentally overdosed? I'm willing to entertain the idea um, of an overdose. What I think, based on the preponderance of my reporting, is that the, uh, the, the facts suggest a homicide, which, and, and what's so damning is that somebody never got a homicide investigation, so we can never know for sure. Wow. Uh, um. Well, thanks a lot. Look, Sean's book, The Murder of Sonny Liston, Las Vegas Heroin and Heavyweights, is available at Amazon.com. All good independent brick-and-mortar bookstores as well. Support your local bookstores. <laughs> um, anywhere else, uh, Sean, you want to uh, suggest that people go to to uh, see some more either about uh, the book, about Sonny, about your work? Well, my work is at seanassale.com. Um, uh, there's been some really nice stuff uh, recently. I won't uh, go into it, but if you want to, uh, yeah, and I mentioned Nick Tosh's book. If you're mm-hmm. if you're interested in Liston, uh, I would uh, I would definitely look up the the Devil and Sunny Liston. Um, Bob Bees has a uh, a wonderful book. There's some actually some nice literature on Sunny. Uh, I just differentiate my work by saying that mine is really a true crime book. Right. Las Vegas is a background that takes place in one year. Um, the others tend to be sort of more panoramic biographies. So as a reader, you can make your choice. But uh, I'm I'm really happy with how it all worked out. I want to thank Showtime for taking so much care. Like I said on Twitter, I work for Showtime, but uh, it's a a damn good documentary anyway, uh, legitimately. So do check it out. And congratulations on all of this, Sean. And uh, thank you again for joining us on the Boxing Podcast. Guys, you guys are a class act. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sean. Sean. Our next guest is one of the most familiar faces 
in boxing commentary. One of the very best journalists and broadcasters ever to grace the sport. And if you think Sonny Liston's life had some twists and turns, it's nothing compared to the fact that Eric Raskin, Kira Mulvaney, and now Larry Merchant are together on a boxing podcast produced by Showtime. Who'd have thunk? Larry, thank you very much for joining us and welcome to the Showtime Boxing Podcast. Thank you. I would not have thunk it either. <laughs> um, so, Larry, you were, I think, with the Philadelphia Daily News during Sonny Liston's prime. And, and, and I'm curious, what kind of personal interactions did you have with him? And, and did you find him to fit this sort of surly reputation that he has? Or, or was there a different side to him that you saw? Well, they had a little uh, press conference introduction when he came to Philadelphia, I don't remember, it was early in the 60s, I guess. Um, it was at a place called Lou Tendler's. Lou Tendler was a top lightweight uh, almost a century ago, and he had a neat little restaurant that was a hangout for the uh, boxing degenerates <laughs> uh, located across the street from the uh, famous Philadelphia Opera. <laughs> And um, I sat down and had a conversation with him. And um, although he was known to be illiterate uh, and, and, and so on, um, he struck me as kind of thoughtful. There was some philosophizing about knockouts, as I recall. And he was talking about the brain being in this little cup. Uh, hmm. suggesting that his jo job was to uh, break the cup and then the brain. <laughs> um, and I found him, you know, in his own uh, way, um, charming. Hmm. Uh, he was, it, it was a charm offense because, of course, his record was known um, and both in and out of the ring. And... and they were trying to uh, sell him to the Philadelphia audience, which at the time uh, was still a, a big center of boxing. And uh, Joe Frazier would soon join it. And there were many, many prize fighters in Philadelphia at that time. Mm. So I'm going to take you back, Larry, not all the way to uh, Sonny Liston's fighting days, but uh, still back a, a bit. I believe it was 1998. Uh, I was a newcomer on the boxing beat, and I was an observer to a conversation you had at ringside with my then boss at the ring, Nigel Collins, shortly after we published our list of the 50 greatest heavyweights of all time. Uh, you approved of much of the list, but your biggest criticism, you said, was that we had Sonny Liston too high. Uh, I believe we ranked him number eight or thereabouts. Is Sonny Liston overrated as a fighter, or is he properly rated in general, but we just overrated him on that particular list? Uh, I'm not much on uh, boxing ratings. Right. But listen, he was a force for a few years in as a heavyweight champion and he was a destructive and seemingly indestructible and a powerhouse and uh, so on. The, the very uh, image of what a heavyweight champion uh, might look like in, in those days. Uh, but to me, uh, his record was a bit uh, thin and flawed, but, I have no problem with people who uh, think he was uh, as 
good or better than many other heavyweight champions. I didn't quite see it that way. Yes, he knocked out Floyd Patterson twice in a round. Uh, but yes, Ali stopped him twice. Right. And, and sadly for Sonny, probably the single most famous image of his career is from that second Ali fight, that classic Neil Leifer image of Ali standing over him, shouting at him. Um, and if you look closely, perfectly framed by Muhammad Ali's legs, there's a young Philadelphia-based sports reporter standing up ringside with mouth agape. Um, what do you remember uh, as being the thoughts that were going through your mind at that moment? Well, of course, it was a shock, um, like everybody else in that, I think, high school gymnasium. <laughs> um, it was uh, hard to believe seeing this indestructible seeming force uh, on his back. A lot of it, a lot of the way we viewed it at the time, or the way many fans or uh, casual fans viewed it, um, re remember that this was a rematch of the uh, shocking upset uh, of uh, Clay before he became Ali, forcing Liston to quit in their first fight. And there were uh, people who uh, could hardly believe their eyes. And the rematch was a very big, a seemingly significant event uh, about, I don't know, 15, 16 months later. And so when there is, when you're anticipating uh, a big fight and it ends bef almost before it begins, there was disappointment, shock, disbelief, uh, and so on. Although I saw the punch land uh, clearly, mm. and I later learned that, as did others, where we happened to be positioned mm. uh, at ringside. So there never was a question to me of whether there was a, a punch. The, the question was, uh, did it have the explosive uh, uh, re result in it that we saw it didn't it didn't seem to be the kind of punch that would do to Liston uh, what we thought Liston could have done to him. Mm. Um, it, it it just occurred to me while you were talking there uh, that I, I don't know that I'd ever really connected these in my mind before, and not to go too far down the former HBO broadcaster uh, rabbit hole, but uh, that a young I think teenage Jim Lampley uh, was went as a fan to the first Ali Liston fight, and we have uh, photographic proof uh, that you were at the second <laughs> Ali Liston fight. So uh, kind of uh, some some interesting symmetry there that I'd never really thought about uh, until you were just speaking, and I mm. flashed well, back Well, I to, was uh, sports editor of the Philadelphia Daily News at the time, and uh, we had a great boxing writer, Jack McKinney, who knew the whole Liston saga and the, his surrounding um enablers uh and was a, a wonderful writer and reporter and so so he are you saying that he was at the first uh the first fight for you guys in he was at the first so fight. you, you I, weren't in miami on, okay. yeah and i watched watched on television okay 
Gotcha. Um, so uh, I asked you earlier about uh, rankings, and uh, we know that's not one of your favorite things. I'm not sure how you feel about hypotheticals, but I guess I'm about to find out. Uh, let's live in a hypothetical world in which Muhammad Ali never takes up boxing. If there's no Ali, how long does Liston reign as champ? I have no idea. Um, I don't know if he could have handled being a champion, some fighters mm-hmm. can't. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't recall, frankly, all of the uh, other suspects and respectable heavyweights there were at the time. But Ali was there. Yeah, and right. if it wasn't Ali, somebody else would have come along who had the nerve and the toughness and the boxing skill to deal with uh, a Liston who was an aging heavyweight uh, Mm. for that time. Mm. So we spoke earlier with uh, Sean Assale, who wrote the book on Liston on which the Showtime documentary is, is based. Um, and we asked him about his theory on Sonny Liston's death. Um, obviously, there have been lots of speculation about it over the years. Do you have any particular theory you subscribe to about his death, whether it was you subscribe to Occam's Razor that he just drank and drugged himself to death? Or do you think something nefarious was going on there? I don't know, really. Um, I heard it some various times he had um, turned to drink and drugs. Uh, maybe that was the whole story. But he led, uh, I, I assume, a very lonely life. Mm-hmm. Um, he had been, he left the place of his birth. He then left the place where he grew up and became a fighter and uh, a thug Mm -hmm. uh, in St. Louis. And then he was pressured out of Philadelphia because uh, there were some minor uh, scraps he got into uh, with the police and became front-page news as the heavyweight champion rather than back-page news where... um, Heavyweight champions uh, belong. Then he went to Denver, and similar things happened, and he winds up in Las Vegas. Uh, at the time, a place really ruled by uh, the gambling world, the, the, the illegal gambling world. And it doesn't surprise me that, in hindsight, that uh, um, as, as much as he reached for the sky above to his credit as a, as a boxer that inevitably uh, his feet were planted in the mud and something bad would happen. Mm. All right. Well, last thing, uh, getting off the topic of Sonny Liston and onto the topic of Larry Merchant. Um, I'm sure many of our listeners are curious uh, and, and I'm curious as a longtime admirer. How are you keeping busy these days? Like, I know you were in Vegas for the big fight last week. Are, are you still getting out to the fights much? And uh, in general, uh, is retired life, um, I, I believe you're fully retired, um, uh, is I'm, retired I'm, life I'm good? Working, I'm, I'm working hard at retirement. Okay. <laughs> I've, I've been asked whether I would prefer to be retired or uh, to be working again, and I tell people both. <laughs> but I, my interest in boxing hasn't waned. Um, I sometimes have, uh, 
some people over to watch a big fight. Uh, and I do my commentary there. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> um, I try to keep up with the boxing scene. Um, a couple of things I should tell you about Liston. I'm thinking here as a, a journalist of some interest. Yep. Um, at the fight in, in Maine, the rematch, uh, the day before the fight, I went on a seaplane venture promoted by the state, which was trying to promote tourism with the fight. And there were two other people on the seaplane. And we were going up to a lake where they had uh, a, a lot of fish, and it was uh, people there fishing for something I never heard of, landlocked salmon. In any event, um, Customato was one of the other passengers, and Sonny Liston's father was the third passenger. Hmm. Um, Liston, having been one of 25 children of this man, presumably, he was a very... He, he, he didn't say much, I'll put it that way. I tried <laughs> to open him up, but uh, not much came of it. Um, it was on that day or the day before that I also interviewed Liston privately, and I felt... There was uh, some kind of lethargy in him. Mm. Uh, I think he knew that he had met his match. I think that uh, that's why he came out so hard in the first round, determined to end it as quickly as possible, um, because he knew he couldn't last many rounds against Ali, who was younger and faster and at least as brave, I'll put it that way. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that's why he walked into that punch. Mm. And that's that's why the punch was more significant than any of us thought. Because A, because he was lunging toward Ali, and B, because he never saw it coming. Right. Um, one of my disappointments, incidentally, with the documentary is that they don't show the frame-by-frame -frame footage uh, that we at HBO once showed during a special with me and uh, uh, Mike Tyson on knockouts. Hmm. And you saw the punch land clearly, and you saw, most importantly, uh, which you couldn't see with the naked eye, Liston's head jerking back, mm. and so that it was a, a punch that affected the medulla of Langata, and that's what knocked him out. Mm. Um, just thought I had to get that in. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I and I like how you know, like a a true journalist, you don't want to make yourself the story. I tried to ask a question about you, you entertained it for thirty seconds, and then shifted the, the, <laughs> shifted it back to the fighter. <laughs> Well, I live in Santa Monica, and um, uh, I guess I was destined to live here. Um, and it's uh, another beautiful day in Santa Monica, so I'm I'm doing good. I have family around, uh, including a couple of beautiful uh, little grandsons, and um, I get out once in a while. That's good. Wonderful. Well, 
Being here in snowy Vermont, uh, being in sunny Santa Monica sounds like a pretty good idea right about now, I have to tell you. Um, Larry, look, it's always such a pleasure to talk to you. You're always so generous with your time and, and to all of us. And uh, it's 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 a, a genuine delight to have the chance to talk to you again. Can, and, I, uh, can I add a postscript? Please. Sure. Uh, Jack McKinney was very close with Joe Polino, a famous cut man of that time in Philadelphia and Sonny Liston's cut man. And we used to think he was also Jack McKinney's cut man because McKinney, <laughs> um, was a, um, a bar fighter occasionally and <laughs> would come up all bandaged and, uh, taken care of, uh, to do his rewrite, uh, <laughs> uh du his duties. Um, and Polino told him everything that had happened in those fights. And in the first fight, yes, there was an ointment deliberately put on Liston that got into Ali's eyes huh. and almost ended the fight right then and there. Hmm. And yes, later McKinney uh, found out about uh, Cleveland Williams and Eddie Machen having also complained of an, of something in their eyes during fights with Liston. I don't know if that lowers or raises um, Liston standing among all-time heavyweights in your <laughs> eyes, in your <laughs> eyes. <laughs> but I think it's something to consider, especially with all that nonsense about um, uh, betting coups and the mafia and the rest of it. Uh, the heavyweight championship in those days was still uh, the, the most prized and a valuable uh, title in sports. Why would anybody give it up voluntarily? Mm. Right. Mm. Awesome. Hey, Larry, as always, you have saving the best for last. Uh, <laughs> always have some great insight. We really appreciate it. It's it's great to talk to you. I hope we get to see you ringside again soon. It's been too long. Uh, hopefully. Um, they've got some kind of weird YouTube personality <laughs> fight going on here in Los Angeles uh, yes. this yes. weekend. And trust me, uh, I will be as far away from it. <laughs> Smart man. You, you, you and me both. Hey, Larry, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, guys. Bye. I really enjoyed both of those interviews. Thanks again to both Sean and Larry. Uh, they, the Columbo uh, just one more thing routine <laughs> from Larry never gets old. Uh, and anyone who's ever interviewed him for an article knows that Larry routinely calls the reporter back a few minutes after the interview ends to mention something he realizes later he, he should have brought up. Harder to do that with a podcast. Uh, so he, <laughs> he squeezed it in before yeah, we hung I up. I love that he just totally dropped the, the key piece of information about the whole thing right at the end. Oh, right. yeah. By the way. Right. <laughs> yeah, he, he loves doing that, but I'm glad he squeezed that in there. Um, and anyway, uh, you listeners probably figured this out, but uh, those interviews were recorded before the Logan Paul KSI fight. Uh, hence, Larry's uh, noting that he would not be in attendance, uh, whereas the rest of this podcast is being recorded on Sunday. Uh, in any case, Kieran and I both strongly recommend watching the Liston documentary, which again premieres this Friday 
at 9 o'clock p.m. Eastern time. And as soon as it ends at 10.30 Eastern, we get live boxing in the form of a showbox triple header from the Winnevegas Casino in Sloan, Iowa, getting our first looks at some promising prospects in three classic divisions, welterweight, middleweight, and light heavyweight. Uh, because we took up a good chunk of the show exploring the Sonny Liston documentary, we're going to be a bit less thorough than usual with our showbox preview. Uh, like a fleet-footed, fast-handed boxer, we're going to get in and out quickly, um, even though this is a very strong showbox card featuring six boxers with a combined record of 65 and 1. We start with the main event, 10 rounds, welterweights. It's 16 and 0, Eric Vega Ortiz of Tijuana taking on Alberto Palmetta, who has a record of 12 and 1 and represented Argentina in the 2016 Olympics. The thing that stands out here is that Yes, Vega is a fairly talented-looking prospect, but he has fought nobody. Um, Of his 16 opponents, only three have had winning records. So Palmetta is a significant step up for Dinamita. Kieran, do you see this as a fight where the one-loss fighter might actually be the favorite over the undefeated kid? Yeah, quite possibly. The the last six, I think it's the last six opponents of Palmetta have the same number of wins between them as the entirety of Vega Ortiz's opposition. Um, uh, and then as well as, you, you know, you mentioned uh, Palmetta uh, was in the Olympics. I think he had quite an extensive amateur career, about 120 fights or 112 amateur fights, something like that. And he also turned out uh, for that World Series of Boxing, that weird hybrid, are they pros or not right. team boxing thing. I don't even know if that's still a thing. Um, but, but was for a little while. Vasily Lomachenko was on that, participated in that at some point as well. But so anyway, the point being that he's, he's got quite a bit of experience there. I've watched a bit of video of Palmetta. I I don't know if he's very good, although he was a highly touted amateur in in Argentina, but he does have a fun enough style. He, he, he tries to make his fights. And uh, I think at 29, he knows that he needs to um, uh, step it up. Uh, Here's what he said, Palmetta about this. I don't know if this is my toughest fight, uh, but it's my biggest fight. Uh, A victory would be a stepping stone to my goal of fighting the best in the world and becoming champion of the world. Um, As an amateur, I was a top 10 boxer in the world. I want to be the same as a professional. This fight is the doorway to that. And Vega Ortiz says much the same, though. Um, I'm going to show what I can do November 15th. It's time for me to shine. I've been waiting for this opportunity all my life, and that really motivates me. It's an honor to represent Mexico, and I'm going to show everyone who I am. A victory would mean everything to me. Uh, Even though I've already been a professional for years, this fight will be effectively the beginning of my career, which, based on his professional record, is not untrue. This is the fight that puts me on the map. So really, basically, it's to sort of use a, a, a phrase that uh we frequently use um this is a very showbox fight yep um right this is a classic one guy could really suddenly elevate himself and put himself in a bit of a conversation here yep all right well as always with uh showbox cards we will make official picks for the main event only uh first though a quick reminder that you can make your predictions for all these fights in the DraftKings showtime boxing pick them just go to DraftKings.com slash Showtime and pick a winner and the method of victory for all three fights. The top five scores of the week split $5,000 in prizes and take home a coveted Showtime swag bag. You have until Friday to get your picks in, whereas our deadline for making predictions on the main event is right now. And uh, Kieran, <laughs> you're still trailing me by four points, 62 to 58, and you are up first. So this is one of those picks that's really tough because there's so little to go on, uh, uh, particularly with Vega Ortiz. We found one fight of his online. That was quite early in his career. Um, There's quite a bit more of Palmetta. 
Um, but um, you know, Vega Ortiz's promoter describes him as quote a technician with a beautiful style. And based on that one fight that I saw, uh, that doesn't seem unreasonable. Uh, he doesn't look like he's your classic Tijuana fighter at all. Mm-hmm. Um, although he says he models himself after Ricardo Finito Lopez in that you know he likes to box, but he he can fight if he needs to. He seems to be a very straight up. Boxer, nice footwork, works extensively behind a lengthy jab. Um, the issue, as his promoter continues, what will he do under this kind of pressure? Is he ready or will he be anxious and nervous and the lights on TV? We'll all find out. And when your promoter's saying that, then that perhaps does suggest there's a, maybe there's a reason why he hasn't really fought anybody to this point. Um, you know, whereas Palmetta, in contrast, he's been on comparatively larger stages. We already mentioned the Olympics, of course. Uh, he doesn't seem necessarily like the most fluid of boxes to me, but he's confident and competent. He's a southpaw. Looks like he might be a bit hittable, but he also does look like he likes to make a fight. He fights well out of a crouch, and he does appear to carry some pop in that left hand. He's, I saw a f- few instances where he, where he drops and crumples a few opponents. It doesn't look like his left hand is very fast or very hard, but it obviously has some effect, at least on the kind of guys he's, he's, he's faced so far. So anyway, look, this is a hard call, and maybe I'm being led a little bit by the way you posed the opening question but I think I'm going to go with the once beaten guy here over the unbeaten guy. I, I think he might have a few too many variables for the young Mexican, unless, of course, uh, uh, Vega Ortiz has improved considerably in fights that we just haven't seen. Um, but I'm going to pick uh, Palmetta to win by unanimous decision. It's a tough call with so little information to go on. It could be that Vega Ortiz really is uh, uh, every bit as classy a boxer as he looked like he might be. B and, and his promoter says, but I'm going to go with Palmetta by UD. All right. Uh, well, uh, the st- smart strategy here for me would be just to pick whatever you pick and uh, try my best to sit on my lead. Um, but I swear that's not what I was trying to do here. I went, <laughs> I, I went ahead and, and happened to uh, jot down the same pick a- as you. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, Vega not only... Uh, taking that massive leap up in competition, but against a southpaw, no less. It, it's a tall task. Uh, Palmetta has a good, sharp, straight left hand that he goes to the body and head with. He's fairly quick. He's a little short for the welterweight division at 5'7", but he can fight. He can move well. He throws a good left uppercut. Um yeah, I, there wasn't nearly as much footage of Vega available online, as, as you said. Um, but what I saw... I wasn't that impressed by it. Uh, again, it's hard to tell when yeah. you've got one fight against limited opposition. But from what I saw, Palmetta just looks like the better boxer. I think he's better prepared for this moment. So I, too, am taking Palmetta by unanimous decision. There you go. All right. Just holding on to your lead. Just <laughs> desperately trying to make it to the end of the year. Yeah. Um, yeah. I can hear my corner man screaming, hold him, hold him. <laughs> That's right. Stick and move. Stick and move. Um, in the co-feature, hard-hitting Marcos Escuduro, uh, like Palmetta uh, from Argentina, meets Joseph George of Houston in a 10-round light heavyweight bout. Uh, Escuduro is 10-0 and with nine KOs, so we know he can pop, although the opposition was extremely suspect until he began to step it up in his last two fights. Wins over 14-7-2 Elio Araldo Trosh and 11-3-1 Roy King. Uh, George is 9-0 and with six KOs. Uh, has also been facing a low level of opposition to this point. Uh, he's moving up from 168 pounds, is George. But he says that's a good thing because he doesn't have to struggle to make weight. So he'll be strong on fight night. Uh, Eric, we've had a chance to watch some Escaduro footage. Uh, 
does that power seem to be for real? Uh, it's impossible to know. The opposition has just been so bad for the most part. Um, there are quite a few of his fights available on YouTube. And one thing I can say is that the power in his right hand to the body is real. Uh, mm. he, he's landed some beauties across the fights I watched. Uh, but, man, th- this card is full of guys with glossy records who really haven't proven it at all yet. And, and that's the charm of Showbox. Everyone on this card is stepping up big time relative to their previous opponents. Right. If Escudero knocks out George, that will be the best evidence yet, I suppose, that his power is legit and his KO percentage is telling a meaningful story. But from what I've seen, it's really hard to know if, uh, if that knockout power is for real. No. Uh, and opening the show, eight rounds in the middleweight division. Again, more glossy records being tested. It will be identical 9-0 and records clashing, in this case, as 23-year-old Amilcar Vidal of Uruguay, who has eight KOs among his nine wins, meets Zach Prieto of El Paso, Texas, who is just a tick behind in the knockout department with seven of them. This is Vidal's American debut. He's the favorite. He's faced the better opposition. And Prieto seems to respect the challenge he's up against here. It does sound like he does, indeed. Uh, he said, uh, Prieto, that I've worked a long time hoping for an opportunity like this to come along. But he has said, from what I've seen of my opponent, he's strong, and it's going to take a lot of strategy to beat him. He's someone who's going to take more than overpowering to defeat. Um, and then also adding, as all these fighters do at this level, a, a victory would mean another step down the road for me and mastering my craft and being able to step up and fight anyone they put me against. Um, Vidal, incidentally, uh, just a brief little factoid here. He's trained by his brother, Richard Vidal, and Freddy Fundora in Coachella. And he spars... Um, with Freddie's son, Sebastian Fundora, oh. who we love, who is the uh, uh, a showbox regular and total freak of nature. He's the <laughs> nine-foot-tall welterweight, yes. and I'm, I'm pretty much not exaggerating there. <laughs> you, you barely are, yes. He is a <laughs> praying mantis in boxing gloves. <laughs> there you go. All righty, that is showbox. So we've got uh, several hours of boxing-related content for you on Showtime on Friday. Uh, a few other news items from around the world of boxing to cover this week. Uh, we'll get the sad news out of the way first. Uh, California-based Hall of Fame promoter, Matchmaker, cornerman, manager, publicist, and writer Don Fraser died on October 30th at the age of 92. Uh, and we send our condolences to his family and to those who worked with him across his various careers uh, within boxing. Um, uh, also, it has been an awful, awful year for fighter deaths. Um, and this week brings us news of another one, this time in Australia. Uh, junior middleweight Dwight Ritchie collapsing and dying during sparring. Um to this point, from what I've seen, details seem a bit sketchy. There, there was a report that he collapsed after a body shot. Um, he was sparring uh, Michael Zarafa, who we may recall fought Jeff Horn recently. Zarafa preparing for a rematch. Um, Richie, 19 and 2, and just 27 years old, Eric. Yeah, th- this news is, is just awful. And um, yeah, you know, we're, we're all aware that fighters take damage in sparring that we never know about. But th- this is a new one, and an actual sparring fatality. I've not heard of this no. happening before. Um, makes you think about the fact that, unlike fights, you don't have medical crews around for sparring. No ambulance parked out back. No doctors mere feet away. Mm-hmm. This is one more thing for boxers and trainers to be concerned about and to try to minimize the potential for tragedy, even though this sounds, by all accounts, like something really fluky must have happened. Must have been. Um, but and, and and on top of that, you 
have to feel awful for Michael Zarafa now to, to go oh. into a fight with this weighing on him. It's just unimaginable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, condolences to everybody who's involved mm-hmm. um, in that situation. Uh, from the UK, news of a boxer who retired before the sport could damage her health uh, anymore. Uh, we quite rightly laud Clarissa Shields over here, uh, not least for her two Olympic gold medals. But in Britain, Nicola Adams uh, was just as celebrated. Uh, she too won two Olympic golds in the flyweight division in 2012 and 2016. Uh, she was also the first openly LGBT athlete to win an Olympic boxing gold. Um, as a pro, she went 5-0 and 1, but that's come at a bit of a cost. Apparently, she's been advised that she's at risk of losing her eyesight should she sustain uh, any further damage. So she's hung up the gloves. Uh, uh, yeah, further inf- evidence that this is a tough business to be in, boxing. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, congratulations to, to Nicola on a, on a pioneering career. She's very popular in the UK. Um, uh, so uh, all the best to her. Mm-hmm. All right. The rest of the news this week concerns fights that are or aren't happening. Um, we'll start with one that apparently is not. Uh, Andre Ward was certainly floated in the immediate aftermath of Canelo Alvarez's victory over Sergey Kovalev as a potential mega fight opponent for Canelo. Um, Andre said emphatically this week he has no plans to unretire, that not even a fight for huge money against Canelo could lure him back. I, I kind of believe that myself. I had a chance when we were both on the road with HBO to ask him a couple of times about how retirement was working for him. And he would admit in the odd unguarded moment that it was kind of hard. But um, but that he was sticking to it. He's, he's a different cat, Andre. He, he marches to the beat of a different drum than most, which is as evidenced by the fact that he was quite happy to sit out for two years of his career. Um, you know, so I, I'm sure he does see other openings and opportunities for himself. But that said, it's certainly easy to see why there'd be interest in this matchup. It's certainly like immediately seemed like, oh, my God, this is a, an ideal situation. Um what was or is your your interest level in this? Do you think Canelo could be interested? And do you buy? Do you think that there is not a figure with enough zeros in it uh, that if Canelo's side offered it, that would not tempt Andre to go back on his word and maybe make this fight happen? Hmm. Well, the, the middle question of the three that, that you just asked, the one you kind of glossed over quickly, uh, do, you, do you think Canelo could be interested? I, I think that's an important one because people are quick to ask Andre if he's interested right. without asking Canelo if he is. Right. Um, you know, as, as much as Canelo would surely love to add a Hall of Fame name like Andre Ward to his resume, he has plenty of other options. Um, mm. And so if age and inactivity haven't severely diminished Ward, that's a tough-ass fight for Canelo. Yeah. Uh, I kind of doubt it's at the very top of Canelo's list. Uh, that said, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if I believe Ward or not. I think if you put like a big $25 million offer in front of him, he might have a hard time saying no. Um, it depends whether he's fully switched off that competitive mm-hmm. light. Uh, if he's not feeling the itch at all and, and feeling the drive to compete and prove he's the best, then I suppose maybe the money doesn't matter. Um, and certainly he has a good thing going as a commentator. Uh, so I do tend to think he's being sincere about not intending to fight again. But a payday of like two or three mm. times more money than you ever made before, that that could change your mind. Um, as for my interest, I love it. I think it's a yeah. fantastic fight. Um, I never hated Andre Ward's fighting style like some people did. Um, to me, this is just a case of what's not to like. Uh, just a, yeah. a great fight between two future Hall of Famers with endless layers of intrigue. If it happens... As long as it isn't in Saudi Arabia, I'm all for it. Uh, um, Speaking of Canelo, uh, two of his recent opponents 
Daniel Jacobs and Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. are now officially scheduled to fight one another. Uh, first, we heard it was in the works. Then we heard it was off because Chavez was dodging Vada testers. Uh, but now there's been an official kickoff press conference. The fight is set for December 20th in Phoenix with DAZN streaming it at a weight limit of 168 pounds. Still a lot of time for something to go wrong and presumably a lot of pounds between 168 and wherever Chavez is now. Uh, what's your interest level in this fight, Kieran? Uh, is it a real fight, or is this just a curiosity to you? So my interest level is 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 fairly high because I always have an interest in Daniel Jacobs. It's as simple as that, right? He's one of the very best uh, interviews in boxing. He's one of the very best people in boxing. Uh, and he also happens to be really, really good at boxing. Um, is it a real fight? I don't know. Is there any reason we should believe it is? Um, I mean, Chavez was predictably awful against Canelo, and then he's fought just once since then, I think, and that kind of like a wash of a fight. Um, and like you said, he's since dodged the drug tester. Um, I don't know. Without Given his performances on the big stage, uh, without that last name, he'd have been tossed on the scrap heap a long time ago. Um, that name is still working for him. And that's... I mean, really, that was... You know, we talked about Billy Joe Saunders looking great in one fight, basically. Really, for Chavez, he's uh, outside of that Andy Lee fight, when I remember it seemed, wow, you know what? This kid, this kid can fight. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he's kind of just, has he done another, has he put up another really good performance? He's occasionally shown he can fight, even if not fight well. But, you know, against Sergio Martinez, against Canelo, he's just been dreadful. So, I mean, not even just second best like awful right so i don't know he's got he's called chavez he's called julio cesar chavez so there you go but <laughs> it's a good the thing is it's an it's a nice name and it's a nice opponent and it's good money for for daniel jacobs yeah so uh, so that's a good thing that's all i gotta say about that okay um <laughs> and lastly uh, the day after Jacobs Chavez on Fox, we will see the rematch between Tony Harrison and Jamel Charlo, uh, 364 days after Harrison's controversial upset decision win over Charlo. Uh, they will perhaps settle the score at Toyota Arena in Ontario, California. Um, Charlo has had one comeback bout in between, but Harrison's been in, uh, inactive since last December. Uh, you looking forward to this one? Yeah, yeah, I am quite a bit. Uh, This was a good fight. Not a great fight, but a good fight the first time. Um, I thought the decision was less controversial than some people did because Mm, whereas, Mm. yeah, the the American broadcast had Charlo winning. uh, I was in a foreign country for this fight watching a Spanish language broadcast and they had Harrison winning. Um, Mm. Certainly, it was a close fight. Um, Harrison fought the fight of his life. I don't like the fact that he hasn't been able to get himself a fight since then, uh, or at least uh, hasn't been able to, uh, to to go through with one due to injuries and whatnot. Um, so that's not great for him. And on top of that, Charlo is going to be motivated. Uh, so this one should have good buildup, good hype, should be an entertaining fight. A nice addition to a very strong last couple of weeks of the year, typically a dead zone in boxing, but not in 2019. Yeah, indeed. Indeed, that will do it for this episode of the podcast. Our thanks again to Sean Assel and Larry Merchant. Uh, do tune in this Friday, or at least at your DVRs, for Pariah, The Lives and Deaths of Sunny Liston, followed by Showbox from the Winnebago's Casino. Uh, we will be back next week to review that Showbox card, to preview Deontay Wilder, Luis Ortiz 2, and, oh, what the hell, I'll go ahead and promise another interview. 
Who knows? Maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't. But we we, we might have something lined up. What the hell? Um, anyway, it'll be. I'm sure it'll be a great addition. Anyway, um, until then, there's certainly be no more discussion of Logan Paul and KSI. I can tell you that much. I think we've got that out of our heads. I think but so. Until then, thank you very much for listening.